I welcome you to another episode of the Global Greek Influence Podcast. I'm your hostess, Panagiotou Pimenidou. The pandemic has accelerated changes in communication and conducting education. Most of us, including governments and organizations, evangelize the future of young generations, how it should be shaped based on their needs, perceptions, dreams, and how to achieve them by a new education. The future after the pandemic will be more digitalized than ever in all areas of our lives. Name them, businesses, the economy and education, science and engineering. Yet, the current pandemic has emphasized and exacerbated global debt inequalities. If our future is digital, how could we ensure equal access to education and enhance inclusion while global debt increases by threatening economic growth and affecting even research and innovation? Social exclusion, also known as marginalization, is a big issue in underdevelopment and developing countries and in many economically more developed countries where most of the population enjoys considerable economic and social opportunities. Marginalization propagates to young generations, endangering the future development of societies and their aspects and reproducing poverty. I have a great personal interest in these topics, which will significantly affect scientists and engineers standing in different academic programs in the next 10 to 20 years, influencing research, innovation and the business. Professor Michael Kodopodis, the Chair in Global Childhood and Youth Studies and Director of the Inclusion Childhood and Youth Research Center at the University of Leeds, is the best person to speak about future generations' education. Professor Kodopodis' journey started at the University of Crete in Greece at the Department of Psychology. Later, as a graduate, he published his first peer-reviewed article with Professor Purkos on 16 years old student school experience. He finished his PhD at the Free University Berlin, Magnum Cum Laude. Soon after, he became the secretary of the International Society for Cultural and Activity Research and was awarded a medal by Moscow University. His background is built on psychology, anthropology and education with recent publications on media and globalization. Professor Kotopodis conducts research on inclusive and equitable quality education and children's well-being from a global perspective. Such expertise was achieved by gaining a visiting fellowship at New York University and Graduate Center, a visiting professorship at the University of Sao Paulo and JNU in India that he holds until today. Professor Kodopodis was the principal investigator of the EU research project Global Perspectives on Learning and Development with Digital Video Editing Media and the book Neoliberalism, Pedagogy and Human Development. Welcome to the show, Mihaly. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be here with you. And thank you for all the work you're doing to bring all of us together and to present our ideas to the public. Really appreciate it. Thank you for accepting the Global Greek Influence podcast invitation. I'm delighted to have you here today and excited about our conversation. Let me start by asking you, what are the effects of the pandemic on global debt, poverty and marginalization? What effects may you expect to see in the next five years to the youth? Uh, this is a very good question. And we're 
probably begin the podcast by referring to negative aspects. I will refer to positive uh, possibilities as well later on. But to be grounded, the pandemic, unfortunately, as recently written in one report by UNICEF, uh, has put the future of a whole generation the children and young people growing up today around the world at risk. And according to UNICEF, one could refer to these children and young people as a generation COVID. One dimension, among others, but this is quite central, by the end of 2020, the world's total debt uh, was 281 trillion American dollars. Uh, which is more than 300% of the global domestic uh, product. This means uh, there is a debt uh, that is, so to say, passed over, passed on to the next generation. The young people and children who grow up today will live in societies uh, and in uh, states uh, that could no longer support education and welfare systems in the ways uh, they did until now. So this is this means there will be also precarious livelihoods, poverty, increasing rates of unemployment, uh, eventually more immigration and uh, also violence in some cases. And me and my colleagues were also afraid that there will be ever-increasing inequalities related to gender, racial, cultural, religious, and geographical aspects. So all this is is is, uh, is very negative. Uh, some of these developments were taking place before the pandemic, and, and it's a longer discussion why. Uh, for example, we have poverty in in the UK, uh, in, in Leeds, where I'm now. Uh, we have poverty in Athens, we have poverty in Brazil, and especially for the young people. Now, the pandemic has clearly have um, an even more negative impact uh, on what was, was already before the pandemic uh, problematic. So you mentioned the negative aspects of the pandemic in uh, the future generation, in that generation that is going to take the rise of the world in the next 10 to 20 years. Do we have any positive challenges ahead of us? Do we have any opportunities that are rising that could alleviate all these negative effects mm. of the pandemic? Uh, well, this is a Greek uh, global Greek podcast, okay? So the word crisis, uh, which is what we talk about in ancient Greek, has a positive meaning as well. It means to decide, to evaluate, and eventually to change direction, okay? So it's from the from the verb krino, uh, which, which means to, to decide when there is a turning point. So I see some positive potential, and this eventually relates to the digital media and technologies. Uh, not to say that automatically everything will become better because of the fact that everybody has access to the internet, uh, but there is much potential there. This fits very well with my next question. Despite that, we have access to social media, mobile and desktop applications. Digital literacy is not well established among youth. Why is digital literacy critical? 
Uh, well, let me explain first what we mean by digital literacy, uh, because the term has been used for many years. And uh, as uh, digital technologies have been evolving, so has the term uh, also uh, slightly changed. Uh, so today, we would be defining digital literacy as the capacity to navigate virtual spaces where the offline and the online or the off-screen and the on-screen is merged. Uh, so digital literacy is not just about doing things online. It is, it is about navigating spaces where everything is at the same time, offline and, and online. Obviously, this has to do with us talking here. It has to do with video conferencing or, or communication technologies. It has to do with uh, young people uh, engaging in digital learning. At the same time, they may be in a classroom. What is key in the relevant research and literature is uh, the possibility given to young people and to children today to co-produce technologies and designs in ways that they like. Uh, and this is also something that is quite po positive and, and quite new. So we're not only talking about young people and children, let's say, spending an hour on Facebook. We're talking about them creating content and eventually setting up their own networks. Uh, there, there are so many young people who do computing uh, even who make uh, hardware, we, we have uh, a makerspace at the University of Leeds uh, to facilitate exactly this. I agree with you, to come back to your question, uh, that given the possibilities that are out there, there are very few young people uh, and even less children, so younger ages, who engage uh, creatively with all these technologies. And this is where education comes into play. I can talk more about this. Digital literacy carries with it a lot of responsibility. I wonder how could digital literacy enhance current pedagogy? And by pedagogy, we mean the methods educators use in teaching and learning at all levels of education. Additionally, how could digital literacy help overcome marginalization? So that's two questions. Uh, this, 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 these are very good questions. Uh, me and my, my colleagues at the University of Leeds, we do research uh, across uh, levels of education. So, for example, there is the well-known study born in Bradford, where we collect data since uh, about 10 years now, uh, data from uh, over 13,500 families about all possible aspects that have to do with uh, children and child development and education. And as part of this study, uh, we currently explore how to best upskill the next generation when it comes to digital skills. And that's especially important because Bradford, as you may know, is the sixth largest city in the UK with uh, very high levels of deprivation. So it's one of the, of the most deprived areas uh, in the UK. 
And our hope is that uh, if we enable the children and the young people from Bradford to navigate our digital world, uh, they will not only find jobs, but they will be active citizens. They will change things for the better. This goes to the other direction as well. So if they don't have support to develop digital skills, uh, then they may be excluded from all present-day developments. Uh, so let me connect this to your first question. I think uh, we do a little bit the same with regards to higher education, but that would be another uh, longer discussion. Upskilling teachers as well as youth workers and community workers who may work with children and young people is our main priority in this frame uh, because uh, how can the school or a youth community centre support the young people to engage uh, safely and critically and creatively with digital media if the adults who are there don't know how to do that. Unfortunately, uh, teachers who, especially in the UK, uh, but also it's, it's quite common across countries, do anyway work a lot. They do need also now to learn new skills and they do need to collaborate with each other. For example, teachers who teach computing uh, ideally should do that in parallel and in collaboration with teachers who teach art. It doesn't make sense to separate the two. There are many boundaries here. So, so there are institutional boundaries. The curricula and the exams, as they are currently framed, do not help. Uh, so uh, we, we try to do what we, we would call bottom-up work or, or ground work, like working with concrete schools, uh, academy trusts. But it's very difficult to get this institutionalized. There are similar experiences from Brazil and, and elsewhere where teachers are usually very eager to, to follow our basis of advice and to collaborate and engage and collect also data, doing research. Uh, but then when it comes to policymakers, local, national policymakers, somehow this, these ideas are not always uh, easily implemented at a larger scale. Again, this is not to personalize critique. I'm not saying that concrete policymakers are not uh, eager to do the changes, but but there there are structures, huh? there there are institutional uh, settings like exams where it is very difficult to to do a change. I also understand the effort educators have to make in order to transform, to digitally transform current education, while at the same time they have a challenge of implementing new methods and new curricula to meet the challenges of the next generation. So just to follow up my previous question, how is current and established pedagogy transformed by digital literacy? Higher education is becoming more online uh, and blended and there's more flexibility, let's be fair. Uh, if we focus uh, on a university like Leeds, we do have more, far more resources 
than than other universities and also than schools or teachers uh, secondary schools and primary schools do so we can we can be more innovative this is why we try to collaborate with schools and for example in the next year we will be developing a MOOC uh, a massive open online course which teachers uh, can undertake as part of their lifelong learning so in-service training so that they can uh, update themselves the question it's difficult for me to answer fully because the change is in front of us uh, there is a lot of resistance though at as i said at institutional uh, levels i could just mention one dimension here uh, that it is easier for teachers and pupils or students to combine different resources in teaching and learning. So not only to use, for example, classic school textbooks, but also to use YouTube songs or improvised cultural productions that the students may make. Uh, these may come from a different uh, country or from a different culture. So the school is a place where one can enact more connections between diverse cultural uh, spheres and different times and spaces. To say the same thing in a different way, by combining audiovisual and written materials, students can engage in more uh, meaningful ways with different forms uh, of uh, knowledge and they can participate in this. So sometimes we have pupils or students who tell to the teachers how they can do things. Eh? Or we have, uh, let's say, refugee children who uh, support their parents to apply for a visa online. And that's where there's a shift a little bit in the classic relationship between adults and children Sometimes it's the child or the young person who knows more than the adult. Uh, not always, though. And uh, I see always a necessity here for the school to support meaningful engagement and for us researchers to support schools in doing that. I understand that any transformation, any digital transformations in higher education will not only meet institutional resistance, but also resistance from the young undergraduates, especially if they're not used to uh, the digital literacy level of uh, the higher education compared to uh, high schools. Currently, a trend is shaped in higher education aiming to more well-informed and well-rounded future graduates of different educational and career directions in the next 10 to 20 years. I came across some new programs of study and some newly formed universities that offer multidisciplinary undergraduate courses I'm not going to analyze my viewpoint on these new multidisciplinary courses and the fundamental knowledge given to those graduates in order to pursue a career in this new multidisciplinary area. So I'm wondering how could the youth, because the focus here is on the youth rather than what institutions are currently directed to, 
to be informed on what the youth really looks forward to so that we are better informed. So I'm wondering how could the youth that chooses a career path, let's say in social sciences, or those who choose a career and consequently a degree in engineering, science and technology, be informed to understand and have an objective perspective and wishes for the future society, because also this will impact, might actually prevent any future social conflicts. Fantastic question and, and very, very good, very interesting perspective. I was trying to convince a colleague the other day that, uh, well, it was a rhetorical argument. Uh, we're far, far, far before implementing this in practice, uh, that all computing students uh, at the University of Leeds should study sociology and vice versa. All sociology students should study <laughs> a little bit of, of computing. Just to mention one example, we do this uh, more in terms of research. So with me and my colleagues at uh, the ICY Research Center, Inclusion Childhood and Youth Research Center, which I'm directing, we try to, to bring together uh, researchers from across fields, such as neuroscience, education, engineering, computer science, uh, design, policy, uh, and we try to co-produce designs. The word design is important here because it's exactly what makes the difference. One needs cultural and sociological knowledge as well as good technical knowledge uh, in order to, to produce a design that works well for, for many people. When it comes to student education and to youth and young people, research is a little bit ahead. Student education follows from that. A possibility here is eventually that people study as they do their first degree in sociology or in computing science. So in one discipline, then they go to work uh, for a few years and then they come back to university for what we call in-service training or lifelong learning, where they may learn something completely different. Another figure, if we focus on the US, there's a prediction that by 2030, at least 17 million people will need to change professions. And these professions, so 2030 is not very far in the future, uh, do not exist yet, okay? So who is going to do this work and who is going to train these people to do this work? Uh, obviously, we, 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 it's, it's a fast-paced development that, that takes place in front of our eyes. Uh, and the only way, just to come back to what you said, to do things well uh, in this context is to work across disciplines, across sectors, and I would even say across cultures. So it's important to bring together people who have very different insights into communities, into neighborhoods. How does look, life look like in the so-called global north? Uh, does change work in the same way in the so-called global south, okay? Uh, it's, it's important to bring very diverse pieces of knowledge together, not only different disciplines, but, but the different every knowledge that people sometimes have in their everydayness, how to cultivate the land, how to 
working in urban space. This is implicit knowledge. It's not just taught at the university. Soft social skills, soft skills. And this is what I'm hoping the research we do at uh, ICY, the Inclusion Childhood and Youth Research Center, will also contribute to. Moving away from the formal structures of um, young people's education and looking into their political education, their citizens' education, because I'm afraid that this is where we are lacking today significantly at all levels of education, how to train, not how to train, it sounds a little bit manipulative, how to make young people see themselves as part of the society and what tools they have to make their voices heard or to influence decisions. And we see different policies across different countries, organizations promoting policies for involving young generations into uh, the democratic procedures. But how often do youth inclusion strategies and policies in political decision-making and democracy penetrate society in practical terms? Fantastic question. There was a book from the 2016 uh, Youth Participation in Democratic uh, Life by colleagues from uh, the London School of Economics. And me and my colleagues, we published a book called Global Youth in Digital Trajectories to focus more on the digital uh, aspects uh, in political life uh, recently. Now, we pay attention to young people when, it, when, when they go out, they are loud. For example, uh, in movements like Friday for the Future and Black Lives Matter, uh, I believe young people have have uh, more to say sometimes than we do. I mean, we, we academics or we <laughs> scientists. Uh, it is important for me to begin with this, to develop research that is co-produced uh, by young people. That's what we, we do. So even if it is about collecting big data, what is the big data that young people would like? to be collecting. How can we do this in participatory ways with them? Now, when it comes to broader uh, participation in political life, unfortunately, uh, as explored in the books I referred to, young people feel that those in power don't listen. And that many of the programs that created, for example, by European Union for young people to participate are, are not really having an, an impact on policy because policy and politicians are anyway going to make to do what uh, they want to do without taking under consideration the voices of the young people. Uh, young people seem to be mistrusting mainstream media as well uh, and this is a problem but I can understand why this happens. One way to answer your very pertinent question is to say that we need to understand what are the inventive and creative ways that young people use to navigate political spaces which in principle do not welcome them. Uh, and on that, I think we have to learn more from the young people themselves. I was very happy to say 
that two of the recent Nobel Prize winners were young women. Uh, and at least at a symbolic level, this is important. I'm talking about Nadia Murad and uh, Mala Lagusafzai. So there is a little bit of, of improvement there, but it's not like Western and non-Western democracies are immediately open to embracing all ideas coming from the youth, and we need to accept this. One final question, Harley. How could youth participate in political life, promote democracy, and avoid populism? Because access to media can also hide the danger of populism. If young people have specific priorities and different perceptions across the continents, different countries, and even experiencing marginalization within a society. Uh, you give me a, a very good opportunity to talk about another project uh, my colleagues are engaged in. Uh, so uh, we hope to use, uh, uh, we explore how to use existing social media platforms Uh, that are safe, not necessarily the, the more mainstream ones, as to hyper-connect uh, different schools and communities with each other. And then we work with teachers so that uh, they guide young people and children or, or social workers uh, uh, as well, so that they, they support the young people to engage in virtual communication online with others from far away in ways uh, that enable them over longer periods of time to explore the different standpoints, the different lifestyles, uh, and also to learn more about everyday life difficulties that they all are facing. To make this more, more explicit, when we began working with Brazilians, uh, they all thought everybody in the UK is wealthy, which is clearly not the case. And when we began working with uh, youth from, from Manchester, uh, a lot of people thought everybody in Brazil is, is just doing carnival. Okay, these, these are the <laughs> stereotypes people, people have. But if you bring people together over a longer period of time, there is a need for appropriate guidance by teachers or researchers, then they can slowly understand that uh, they're faced with very similar difficulties uh, and they're part of a, of a global history which entails colonization, it entails uh, wars, but it also entails possibilities for respect and for human rights and, and tolerance towards different styles and views. So we're working with this potential. This is one of our most recently developed uh, research projects. Uh, we do this at a small scale, so a few schools from different countries. And if all goes well, this could become larger scale or, or it could be adopted by international organizations in the future. Thank you, Michali, for giving us a glimpse into the inclusion aspects of education and educational challenges in the post-pandemic period and how we could overcome digital illiteracy 
to promote diversity and overcome poverty. It was a great pleasure to talk with you. Uh, thank you so much. I, pre I really appreciate that you chose me to add value to your podcast. Thank you. More exciting and current episodes are coming to the Global Greek Influence podcast this summer every two Sundays. From September, we will resume the weekly episodes. To be up to date with news from the Global Greek Influence podcast and suggest your topics, subscribe, like and review the Global Greek Influence podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM and for more podcasting platforms. You can contact the Global Greek Influence through the podcast Facebook and Twitter account, the podcast website globalcreekinfluence.com and LinkedIn page.